first of all, I'm Angela Oliver, and I was fortunate enough to be born and raised in Georgia's 5th District, so John Lewis has been my congressman, and his service started in 1987, which is the greatest year uh, of the past millennium, so so I do love John Lewis. Um, I don't know him or anything, but he really, you know, the way he's portrayed in the documentary is really how he is. He's very um, engaged in the community. He does a lot of public forums to hear from people. He speaks at a lot of churches. He's spoken at the uh, church that I grew up in before. So um, I've been lucky enough to see his fruits, and I'm really happy that they finally had a documentary about him. He was the youngest, of course, at the time where they planned the March on Washington, and he's the last living member of the Big Six who coordinated that whole thing. So he just has a really unique position and just having all that knowledge and experience and wisdom um, and I think the greatest thing that stood out to me just from watching that and knowing a little bit about him is that he's kind of the perfect uh, role model for a person that's fighting for civil or human rights because he cares about all sectors of that he doesn't limit it just to you know african-american issues or things like that so that's kind of what i wanted to open with and just maybe get your thoughts on the importance or if you don't see the importance of being plugged into all of the human rights fights uh what do you all think about that we can just jump into it. oh maybe i'm not speaking into it is that better sorry okay yes ma'am violations, all the different groups, you know, women's rights and everything. And a lot of people felt like that that would just, that would cost them a lot. And so he didn't, and I was sitting here thinking, I bet he's smiling down on, on, on the fact that someone can do that, that John Lewis is able to do that. Because that is amazing. That at least shows us we've moved a step forward anyway. And I love that. Because that, that really, really seems to me that it's very important uh, to be able to do that to ever reach nonviolence. You know, really achieve nonviolence. I'm glad you brought that up first. <laughs> I think the biggest thing is is his willingness to uh, stand and get in the way and and be a, a resistance to the things that were seen as normal uh, and to really see the the disadvantage of of the separation you know and know that we're more alike than we are different. Yeah, to, uh, on that same thing, to question the status quo, you know, to, to, to not allow us to do things because that's the way we've always done them, you know, that there are better ways. And, you know, it, it's true for the, the fight for women's equality, it's true for gay rights, it's true for, for all of, all of the, the human rights that we're dealing with. And kind of on the note of that, um, and just the title itself, Get in the Way. Um, because sometimes there's a lot of, well, one, I think there's a lot of misunderstanding about what nonviolence means, because nonviolence doesn't mean, you know, being a doormat. So getting in the way. Uh, do you all see the need for that kind of disruption? Can you think of any other time period or any other movement where someone didn't get in the way and anything got accomplished? Or what do you all think about that? As uh, I consider myself a pacifist, and what what I feel is that I'm sorry, I'm a little nervous. <laughs> I feel that anybody can change the world by force, but it's a true test of the greatness of your character if you can do so peacefully. Okay. I think a lot, a lot of us, these guys, we should look up to. Martin Luther King Jr., 
led a whole lot of what he believed in on nonviolence. Gandhi, John Lewis, and these people have made a huge difference in today's society. And we, we may still have a long way to go, but we can pick up in the great paths that they paved and continue. Anyone else thoughts on getting in the way of just to build up on that point, balance begets balance. Mm -hmm. And the important thing that you said uh, in regard to that was that he did everything in love, even those that hated him. And sometimes it could be your example of love that could build the bridge of misunderstanding, of, you know, misconceptions uh, or perceptions about a person or individual. And the nonviolent part of it can be the most effective. Ms. Jason, and that, that just comes to me is uh, don't take my meekness for weakness. <laughs> I don't think they get to say that. That says a lot. So you can be meek, but you can still be powerful. It took a lot of strength to be, yeah. Yes. Uh, I think people don't like to move. They don't like to change. And so if you don't get in the way, um, getting in the way helps um, encourage people to move and motivates them, gives them a motivation to do themselves. So so it's always that tension between um, shaking things up but not shaking them up so much that then you have violence on the side. Well, I was just thinking back to when I was a college student, and you, you know, um, and I remember after 9-11, I think, and when Bush proposed his war in Iraq, I think people were scared to get in that way. And I mean, I know that we did a march um, at my college, um, but we weren't, we weren't organized, we weren't trained, um, and we weren't effective before the war, and um, I think that I think I think there's so much that goes into it, and you can see that, that John Lewis was really a part of, of something that had so much into it that so much has to go into it to be effective. That it's it's really amazing to see one that worked, having experience with that, one that didn't work. So what thing do you think that you all could have done differently, or Y'all kind of debriefed after, or? <laughs> we despaired after, <laughs> because, because the board got a lot less popular about eight months later. <laughs> like, after, you know, once they got into it, it got a lot less popular, and we're like, I mean, I, I don't know. I, we were young, and, and um, I don't know. I guess we just, it's hard. It's really, it's really hard, you know, so. Sometimes it works, sometimes it doesn't. Because <laughs> we, of course, saw, and I'm sure we were all familiar with the groups like the uh, SCLC and the SNCC and those kind of groups, and just the strategy, uh, like the training that they had with each other, um, just the strategy that goes into it and the organizing. Okay. <laughs> we're like, okay, we're going to have a piece of art. has to be a plan and it's hard to come up with one especially you know when it's that close to um, such an event that kind of shakes us all up and everybody's frustrated and angry and it's hard to focus and come up with the plan because you know you just want the result you know what result you want but we can see just from their example the huge amount of planning I, I hold on just a second she had her hand at first I was going to say I think we have lost our way and we've lost our history mm -hmm. 
Um, and the people of my generation and the younger generation, they're filled with a lot of hate. They're filled with a lot of hurt. Mm -hmm. um, and they only see one way, and that's violence. And through violence, things do happen, but it's not lasting, and mm -hmm. it's not the right direction you need to go. So I think of, okay, what can I do to educate on history? What can I do to make a difference and a change? Mm -hmm. um, I'm definitely not a lucky person. However, in the past few weeks, I have felt very violent tendencies welling up within mm -hmm. me. Um, family divided, friendships divided, friendships ended. Mm -hmm. And it's like, wow, like this, it was here and now it's here. And so the course of action that I take will determine many things mm -hmm. in my life, but that will also determine many things within our community as well, because our footprints are footprints. Right. Um, so just trying to find a way to navigate that. Um, but he's right, find a way to get in the way, but it doesn't mean violence. Right. It doesn't. We're gonna hear and then I was just going to say, I think the thing that got me was um, the most was he was inconsistency in his clarity and purpose. Yes. And that's what you need to have clarity. But he keeps your eye on the cross. And then you can ask the question will this further our cause? Well, what is the behavior? What do we have to do to, to stay this course? Because you don't have the course. He was, I mean, told his cows in the years he had this. And he was exactly the same two years ago, every year ago, whatever the last update was there, and probably today, mm -hmm. um, as he was when he began as a young man. And that is just, if you have clarity and purpose, you are able to um, stay that course. Yeah, I think piggybacking on what she had just said, I think finding thing to get in the way of is, is crucial because it determines the goal or the outcome that you want to have. So especially with uh, the past couple of weeks, it has been hard to decipher what will make the biggest impact to make a difference within our society. And a lot of uh, uh, states, have opted to take down the symbols that were used as a rallying call for white supremacy, uh, and that being the statues uh, that support the Confederacy. And I think sometimes people lose focus uh, or they don't understand why there is a big push for that. And I think it is because of what it stands for. And it is and what it's used for, and that is to promote white supremacy and to uh, further endorse what uh, the, the Confederacy wanted to uh, uh, imply or to teach uh, future generations about the power structure, institutionalized racism. And it was therefore a constant reminder for people to stay in their place. And then the silence, you know, of how people uh, feel intimidated, you know, to say anything about it when you grow up in a culture like that. And they that. talked about that in the video as yes, well, that fear. in the video how if you say something, you don't want to rock the boat because you don't want your kids to lose out on opportunities for jobs. You don't want, you know, you to lose out on the opportunity to get a loan for a home or a car because we don't have the power that others have who may be in favor of having those statues displayed, but it doesn't mean it's any less disrespectful. Um, and I'm glad you brought up um, that point about finding what exactly to get in the way of. Mm -hmm. And we're going to continue to talk about that and parallels for a second. Well, I just wanted to say that, you know, there's a place for passion. There's a place for emotion. There's a place for uh, all of that when 
when trying to make change, but I think what really was illustrated well in this is that it's that channeling of the passion and the emotion. And right now we have a society that is very impulse-driven and is very visually stimulated and we've got social media and we've got all those things and we're whipping people up into frenzies and we're making assumptions about things that we don't know anything about. And you know, we have a whole generation of children who only know violence because the first games they played were violent games. So we're, we're dealing with a lot of social things. And so I think, you know, the part in here that I love, and I know that uh, all of us here that are part of Nonviolent Owensboro, uh, is the systematic, deliberate study of the philosophy and uh, intention of nonviolent action. And that's what we're committed to as a group. And we're trying to follow that path. And so one of our hopes is to bring, we are connected to an organization that does nonviolent direct action training, um, but we need partners that will help us financially to bring them in so that we can start educating the community about how to respond and how to deal with these issues. So that's one of the reasons why we're sponsoring this tonight, why we're getting partnerships, why we exist. And so, as a little plug, um, we do have uh, a brochure in the back that talks about what we have done. Uh, and we've only been around since 2016, so we're really new and we need young people. I don't know if they're still here. I talked to some lovely girls earlier. Um, but we meet on the first Monday of the month over at the Unitarian Universalist Congregation uh, of Owensboro over at Cedar and Parish. We're even going to be there on Labor Day night, uh, first Monday, 7 o'clock. We really are committed to making to changes and bringing in some some folks that can help us out. So if you can help us out, come join. Thanks. <laughs> yeah, one of the points I think of this film and speaking to to the your effort as a college student as well is that this didn't happen. It didn't happen overnight. It didn't happen in a few months. You know, it was slugged out in the, in the sense of putting one foot in front of the other over and over and over again. And as you were saying, Peggy, we have a couple of generations of instant gratification kind of people, impulsive people. So training now means it's going to be a lot more difficult because we have to teach people how to set very specific short-term goals. You know, if in the case of, of the lunch counters, you know, the short-term goal might have been to sit there until they closed, you know, one day. They go back the next day, sit there until they close, you know. Don't talk to anybody, sit there with your book, you know, wait for somebody to want to take your order, which we know isn't going to happen, you know, but very specific kinds of goals. Uh, I, I also want to mention that I read the book, The Children, I think David Haberstein, it's, a, it's about that thick, but it talks about all these young people in Nashville who were the beginnings of the system, and John was one of them. And so as they were you know, showing the, the captions with the people, I thought, oh, I remember that one, and I remember that one. But I recommend reading it, if only because it gives you an appreciation for how much it took for these young people to do this. I mean, they were, they were risking their, their futures. And I do kind of want to talk about that a little bit because um, I know that there's a lot of kind of generational not necessarily divide all the time but maybe uh, misunderstandings between the two just because you know we do things differently sometimes depending on our age um, so not to condone at all any violence from those younger generations I'm a millennial and I think people label millennials and younger people um, a lot uh, so I just am thinking about protests that have been in our country really amplified maybe the past three years when we see um, younger people usually 
that are angry. And sometimes they are throwing um, the little bottles with the fire, what do you call those, you know, into at the um, officers that's been done before or smashing police cars, things like that. Now, the way I register it, it's along the lines of what Dr. King did say, which is that a riot is the language of the unheard. So kind of not in defense of that, because you shouldn't smash police cars and things like that, but to see it from a different perspective, I feel that because, you know, if we're aware as millennials or younger um, of the things that our parents and our grandparents actually fought for, that progress, so we wouldn't have to still be fighting. So it gets to a point where sometimes it's just like, what else can we do? You know, you, you can't, you can't really get over the frustration to think clearly because it's something that's been going on for centuries now. So it gets to a point sometimes where it explodes because what else can you do? Nothing else has worked because we're still fighting the same war, um, you know, 50 years later from his era. So it, I just don't want everyone to misunderstand it as these are just out of control millennials or, you know, or millennials are violent because it's not necessarily that. Some people very well may be, and that's wrong, but for a lot of people, it's just kind of an, an explosion of all these emotions that we have to hold in to really navigate through a predominantly white space. You know, when we're at work or um, at our children's schools or whatever, um, sometimes we have to hold things in that are all a part of this race relations kind of back and forth. So I think that those kind of riots are not necessarily rooted in violence, but just that anger and that frustration of why are we still having to do this? So, yes. Angela, I guess I, I understand what you're mm -hmm. saying, but I, and I think that that's where the training comes in. Mm -hmm. You know, to be able to anticipate the fact that uh, if you're in this situation, um, you're going to you're going to be triggered. Mm -hmm. You know that's going to happen. That destroying a police setting a police car on fire is not going to help the cause. Mm -hmm. You know, learning that ahead of time and pra they practiced. Right. They practiced, and I don't think that what's been going on in the last five, ten years has that kind of discipline to it. And I think that's that's an important piece that's missing to be effective. Right. Yes. Well, I would beg to differ with that because there are uh, Chinese and organizations that do prepare young people to uh, be able to face the challenges of society that they may not be used to. Uh, since we're calling out our age groups, I am Generation X. And uh, in the Generation X generation, we were the ones that were considered wanderers and not having a sense of direction. And uh, whenever uh, uh, we look at our different generations, you have all sorts of things that grab your attention, that keep your attention, things that kids are involved with. Uh, sports and you know church uh, uh, activities and all kinds of clubs and groups so organizations that do offer these trainings and seminars they are in competition with a whole lot of other things that get young people's attention so there are some that do get the training and the training is there and has been there but captivating that audience and being able to instill it in them, that, that's another you know, problem in and of itself. And I do think it is a generational divide and understanding and being able to empathize with the other, the younger generation, uh, to be able to see it through their eyes, what they are actually living and experiencing because their experience is gonna to be totally different than ours. Their perception of life is going to be totally different than ours. In addressing that, my, I was raised in Georgia, Mississippi, and uh, I experienced a lot as a child. Uh, but the main thing I had to deal with my father uh, was that my son playing in the dirt at his feet 
uh, down with the Mississippi group of uh, the family reunion, were referring to uh, black people as the names, which many names, okay? I had to address my father, which I'd never done before in my life, that he could not do that in front of my child. Because my child, who was five years old, was going to be come up in a totally different world than he did. And I did not want him teaching him the wrong things. For the first time, my father backed off. And so did my uncles. And they never said anymore around my child. So that I appreciated. But that's the thing that is that I, I had to address a lot of this. I never understood why. I didn't understand why there were so many problems because my grandmother had a lady that worked with her and uh, stayed with her. Olivia was the most wonderful lady in the whole world. And I loved her. She never had ice cream. And I said, why? She said, because I can't afford it. And if I don't eat it, I don't know what I'm missing. So I learned very young that there was a difference. I didn't quite understand it. I drank from a colored thing and I, and I almost died. I mean, it was just the way things were, but I didn't understand. I finally decided, I appreciate him, that I was going to have to figure this out on my own, and I did. And I, I bought it uh, with my parents and all of my family, all the way through. And, but I learned a lot. But my son today was in Lexington, and his, the thing that I think is so interesting is that my three granddaughters are on the swim team. And the, they had the, there are black, there are Islamic, uh, they're, they're all together and they swim competitively year round. They travel together, they stay together, and this makes me feel wonderful. So I'm thinking that you raise your children and you get them friends with people who love to say, how are people? It just, and, and share things together as people in small groups. And I've had exchange students, nine of them from all over the world. I love it. They're good people. You have to learn in smaller things. A large group of people doesn't do anything but talk over here and talk over here. You've got to invite them in and do it yourself. Do you have anything to say? Oh, I just uh, I appreciate what uh, everything that I've heard or whatever. I've, I've got a problem where um, I've got children from 32 down to 14. <laughs> but but uh, I've always been involved in civil matters. I, I, that's a generational thing for my father. He's always been involved in everything like that. And I will say that to a point, we've succeeded in a way, you know, from all the struggles that we had because it's hard for me to get my children, like she said, they got different perspective, to get them angry or not, well, not angry, not, no, I take that back, not angry passionate about things that you know that still matters that are still going on they see this balance and they think like what you know i mean that's what they're looking at because i look at my two my younger two sons and, and my middle one most of his friends are white it's not because we live in a predominantly white neighborhood and like that but it's just they just you know, they invite them over. I mean, they actually invite them over to the house and they actually eat up. You know how you also say, "Oh, I have a black friend, and we've actually had them over for dinner." No, that nobody. Y'all remember that's what we to say. You had that one black friend that you invited over for supper one time. Oh, the things I going to say. But but you know you know what I'm saying. I mean, it, it's just a natural <coughs> thing. I mean, they, you know, staying all night and stuff. And I, for those that know me, you know, I try to get my children involved. We we went to the march on Franklin. I pulled them out of school. Education enhancement. Let's get on the bus, you know. And I told them, I said, and they went straight to the back. And that was a lesson for them because I said, let me tell you something. Y'all went straight to the back because you want to go back there and act up and have fun. I said, but now you have a choice. But there was a time when you had to go to the bus trying to make that plane. They were like, oh, okay. I mean, they still, you know, I was, I, I was using that as a moment. This is a teachable moment. <laughs> going to the back of the bus because you got a chance, because you have a decision you can do that. And it, it's just, you know, if they if they just don't have that. And I don't know how to keep it going. It's almost like we're losing. Yeah, but I think in light of the things that have been taking place, like in Charlottesville, 
with all of the you know police killings and things of that nature i think it is uh beginning to spark an interest in our young people in a way that it happened before because if it could happen in a small town like charlottesville a college town it could happen anywhere well, my kids love the police. They don't love the police. Yeah. And, and like I said, it's such a thing. So yes. Just, you know, so it's still, you know, I asked, are y'all afraid of the police? No, not really. I said, that's good. No, we want to be, you know, but I, I don't want them to be like they're so isolated that they can't see what's going on. You know, so if y'all got some ideas, let me know because I. I have that same problem with, uh, well, I worked at Kentucky Westland and I was the advisor of the Black Student Union. Um, and I kind of have that same problem about trying to get them to see even some instances on campus and with their administrators that have wronged them or, you know, talk really good game about diversity and inclusion and don't do anything toward it. So, and I, you know, feel like you feel as far as not really wanting to project my perspective on them but not wanting them to be so naive that right. they can't ever stand up for themselves. Right. So I understand that completely, and I don't have any solution for that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, oh, you, yes. Uh, I wanted to talk about how she stood up to her father, she said. Yeah. And uh, I think that's a really important that to say it without being defensive. It's, it's not a secret that white people don't go through the same thing. And I think it takes a lot of courage to stand up to somebody like your father. I think that we have to be more involved as a community because the problem is, is minorities still a lot all around the country not taken seriously. And it's an unfortunate truth. So I think that's where we can educate ourselves and stand with the minorities. Mm -hmm. And I think that's important to keep up. And uh, I'm glad you brought out that point because it does, sometimes it, uh, it is perceived as a knee-jerk reaction or people being overly sensitive. But when you have undertones, of racism that may not be blatant, but you know that if you had your white counterpart, that the same way that you address your white counterpart would be the same way that you address a minority. And sometimes, like in your the case with your children, you know, young adults, they may not be astute enough to know the difference or to know when they are being discriminated against or dehumanized or talked down to because they haven't had the experience of being in those situations. But I think in areas like here where we are kind of isolated from the overt racism, those... It's okay. But I think that, that's the type of racism that uh, many minorities in this area experience because we are a quiet community and you know we don't want a lot of the same issues so we go to great lengths not to entice or provoke those same types of incidences that have happened other places but it doesn't mean we don't have people that are racist and are demeaning and dehumanize you know minorities or make them feel like second-class citizens. You know, it's not that people are being overly sensitive or knee-jerk and just reacting. You know, these things are really taking place. <laughs> just, just a little, just a little something. I was working in residential living where I was working with people' behaviors and, and some physical or some mental challenges, stuff like that. And I had this one client that. Whenever she got angry with me, she just started calling me the N-word. And I was like, really? You 
who can't remember to brush your hair, that's something that you can remember to call. <laughs> I mean, they had to go way back, you know, because and, and the first time it happened, I thought, well, now, I've been called this since I was a teenager, and that was actually from another African-American back in the day when we used to call each other that. And I, she, I had to calm myself down, you know, because I was really getting angry about it, because when she gets mad, that's what, and I had to pull to the side, I said, what is that, and why are you calling me that? What? And she said, well, I don't really know. I'm just, she said, they called me that when I was younger. And I, I don't really know if she knows why she did it or not. But I had to ask her. I had to calm down. I thought, where's that coming from and what does it mean to you? And once we started talking about it, then it seemed like it had less effect on me. You know what I'm saying? Because it came up a few more times. And after that, I was like, oh, well, you know, the, she don't even know why she's calling me that, you know, because it was so, you so much to put us down and that type of thing, stuff that, um, uh, yeah, it's still it's still here, you know. But if you talk about it more, you know, it may not may not affect us as much. All right. And I'm I'm also glad you brought that up, Sandy, because um I think that sometimes challenging family members is one of the kind of concrete ways that leads to progress. And I'm curious, did your father or uncles like did you ever notice them? Maybe oh, having a change of heart no. any years no, later? No, no, no. Okay. I can tell you, my father went to his grave. Mm -hmm. he, and I love you, mm -hmm. but my father, my father was a confrontational but you can say what did you say you didn't say that no I, I didn't hear you say that did I or something to that you know without smacking them up with it you know but it can be done it can be done but, but what do you do when that starts coming as it does over social media I'm sorry what? when it comes starts coming over social media oh. we're not saying it to your face and question oh. that comes from an anonymous person or maybe does you know or not know. There's a license. I have called people out. I have called people out on social media and well, basically said, yeah, you know, if this, if this continues, I'm just going to hide you or I'll find you or whatever. Not so easy for the young ones. I plan to I'm on social media and I do address it. And so do my children. And, and we keep addressing it. And we don't delete it. We leave it there so their face can be seen. Mm -hmm. And we let them know how we feel. Mm -hmm. And and that makes a difference. I, um, I'm a gamer. <laughs> so I play this game called Tribal Wars. And uh, so I, <laughs> it, was, it was like Stratego. It wasn't like I was beating anybody up. Right. <laughs> Not bad. It was like kind of nonviolent. I didn't send out horsemen to go get somebody else's property. <laughs> but it was a lot of males in that, and they used the word fag all the time. And I let them know, hey, I'm gay. You can't use that word. You can't talk about it like that. You can't, if you want to say someone was mean to you or you want to use a different term, you can use that. But you're not, if you're going to be in my tribe, you're not going to use that language or you're going to be by yourself and you're not going to have any property. Thank you. 
that for me because it's still that could have been the CNN news. Real. <laughs> so are there things that you noticed that were there at that time and still here now? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Being an ally is especially important in an area like Owensboro, Davis County, where uh, people of color don't have the numbers to carry a vote or, you know, things like that. So it's really important to be a true ally um, in what you're fighting for and who you're fighting for. Yes. The Hispanic population, how is that going as far as you know? I mean, here, we have a large Hispanic population mm-hmm. now, and, and Bernese and people like that. How are they, do you have any idea whether that they are having difficulties or being wild or are they good? I, I don't yes. know. There has Especially when, um, when uh, the immigration ban came through when Trump first came into office, um, I remember there were two incidences where uh, a child didn't get off the bus at home and the parents came to the school, and these are two different parents, and they were so upset, and 
you know, they didn't want to reveal their status and, and, and they didn't want to talk to administration because they wanted to talk to me because they knew me and they felt like they could trust me. And the kid, one kid, he stayed after school to get help. And another kid, he went to a friend's house. But the reason why I said that is because I've seen how, especially the Hispanic community, community has just closed itself off. And they don't let anybody in, not unless they know you. They don't reveal any you know, information about one another. And it has forced them to really help one another. And uh, they move quite frequently too. And the Somalian uh, families that have came in, I got word that they don't feel like they can integrate here. So a lot of them are moving to Minnesota. They're moving up north to areas where there are bigger uh, Somalian communities. So in some regard, uh, they're not being accepted or integrated in. Uh, I know the uh, Somalian culture felt like they were trying to be forced into the African-American culture, but they're not African-American. Uh, they're immigrant. You know, most African-Americans here are Christian, they're Muslim. And then the Muslim community here are mostly Arab, you know, or they come from uh, Pakistan or Asia. Asia, yeah, or Asian <coughs> countries. And they just could not quite get it, you know, and uh, they're leaving. So I don't think that we are as accepting as we think that we are. And I do know from um, some members, well, the Islamic Center itself, we can see that um, the Muslim community is not necessarily embraced because they've been vandalized three times in a year at one point. Um, but I do know from some members there that there was some concern that the International Center wasn't um, letting some of our refugee neighbors know that there was an Islamic Center here, mm -hmm. which is really heartbreaking because for someone who's coming into a totally different environment and already trying to figure it out, one thing that they could probably hold on to is their faith. And so, of course, being surrounded by people who share their beliefs could probably help them ease into it a little bit more. So that is a problem. Um, and I have also heard complaints that some of the Muslim women, and I know it's an issue statewide, but also hear that possibly they weren't getting considered for certain jobs because of their um, hijabs or their veils and things. So we have those issues right here. Um, so, no, I don't think that our refugee and immigrant communities here are necessarily thriving um, just because I think there are a lot more people that are against immigration and things like that than people are willing to admit here and who act negatively on their opposition. Yes, Tiffany. Oh. Um. Well, as far as like uh, profiling and discrimination, down the street from me, um, there's a gas station and it has a Middle Eastern man who owns it. Um, I know, I can recognize the different points because as a Buddhist, I've spent a lot of time researching Eastern philosophy. There was a man who came in and saw the owner of the gas station. He had his headdress on. Um, but what I noticed that he was also wearing other articles of faith of Sikhism. And this man was discriminated against. The owner of this gas station, the customer walked in and he's being rude. He's, he's referring to him as a terrorist. And, oh, and he doesn't even understand. That's He has no clue. It's not yeah. even, you're, you're profiling somebody. You're not even doing it correctly. You're an idiot. You know, it, it's not. Discriminate <laughs> <laughs> It is not okay, and it's and I've met them. I've talked to them several times. You know, I've I've shared stories and I've heard about where they're from, and you know, I I told them I got I pulled them aside and I let them know. First of all, you're incredibly rude. If you want to be like that, take your business elsewhere. Because the owner he didn't say that for himself. Because I, I guess minorities are being taught that they're not supposed to. And I, I told him, take it somewhere else if that's how you're going to be. Well, but I also think that as a business owner, you probably don't 
confront a customer who's been right. you just take his money and let him go. Then also, I just wanted to throw in, since you mentioned um, that I guess the guy wasn't responsive or standing up for himself, but I mentioned the Muslim women not being considered for certain jobs, and I did want to say that that was something that I wanted to write about. Um, I work at the Messenger Inquirer, but going back to that fear that still exists for marginalized groups here, the women didn't want to talk about it on record. So at that point, there's really not anything that you know I can do or we can do as journalists to get that story out. Um, and the same thing for instances like not telling about the Islamic Center. Yes, there's that fear that people don't want to speak up for themselves. And a parallel to that is uh, like a lot of uh, blacks in the community have spoken out to the NAACP about the Confederate statue. But if you talk to other people they'll be like, I never even know it was there. I've never heard anybody say that. But there have been so many people to say, I don't feel comfortable with having this as being an example or in the forefront of our community. I'm not comfortable. I don't think that it is um, appropriate to honor, you know, the Confederacy and for that to be on display in our community. But if you want ask them to speak out, they don't want to do it. I do want us to get into the statue. Hold on just a second, because she's had her head up for a while, so we'll. I just wanted to ask a couple questions. I was wondering if Homestrow has any voter registration issues. Because you mentioned voter. That's something you can do. Yes. Not that I know of. As far as you mean people being kind of um, discriminated against at the polls or kept from voting, is that what you mean? Or Yeah, in any of its format. Delays of getting paperwork, or um, will there be a problem if everybody had to have a picture? Will that will become? I don't. I don't know what the situation is. So I don't know. Not that I know of locally. Um, I don't think we. I think. More of our problems surrounding voting is that people just don't show up. <laughs> but I have, I have heard from um, people who live in certain neighborhoods um, that, and also from someone who is an elected official, that people when they're campaigning don't necessarily go to certain parts of town and even try to reach out to the people because they don't expect them to show up anyway. So that could be a problem um, that the effort is just not there. And that's totally reflected in things that happen in our city as far as people in those neighborhoods that the uh, candidates don't go to always getting the short end of the stick. So I think that that's a correlation because they just don't value certain people, you know, whether they're of color or poor or just in the wrong zip code. Uh, well, Owensboro only has, what, three zip codes, but you know what I mean. So there's kind of a lack of value, I think, among some elected officials. Judy, where are we going to Oh, okay. So I do want to talk about this statue because I think I think that, um, like she mentioned there in the back, you mentioned uh, division of families or ended friendships, things like that. And that's what we're dealing with right now. This, that's the pulse of the country. And one of those other parallels uh, that really stood out to me was the age of protesters. Of course, we talked about John Lewis starting uh, when he was a teenager and the nonviolent groups were mostly made up of college students. And we see that today as well, but also on the violent side. Because the guys who were marching through campus in Charlottesville with those tiki torches, they look like they were my age or younger, you know. So um, there's a lot of argument here surrounding the statue that it's just history or it's uh, <coughs> A group of people shouldn't be held responsible for things that happened, you know, 150 years ago, but they're still happening. So that's what I need for people to understand if they are in favor, um, especially if <coughs> you purport to support uh, civil rights and human rights, you can't be on the wrong side. There is a right side and a wrong side, and being in favor of Confederate symbols, the same symbols that John uh, Lewis and all of his cohorts had to wade through and be terrorized by because they saw them all over the place. Um, that's like to me, seeing a Confederate soldier on the courthouse lawn might as well be 
and Owensboro whites only. You know, it might as well be a whites only sign. Really and truly. That's one of the, that brings me to the question that I have. Which okay. Was what, you know, one of the things that resonates with our elected officials is we're open for business. You know, we, we welcome business. I would like to know what the corporations, like Alorica, who just got here, what do they think when they see something like that? Because one of the things they look for is, in a, is a community that is inclusive, that, that, does, that doesn't discriminate, that welcomes all kinds of people. Because if they're going to hire people from all over the country, then they need to be able to feel comfortable here. So I'd like to know what they think as well. You know, because that would have some impact on our elected officials. And I do think... Much more so than you or me. I do think that on that note, um, Owensboro lacks a lot of openness that probably has turned down or turned off businesses. And that's why, okay, good, we got 800 jobs with Alorica, but it's not necessarily something that's going to enrich the quality of life. I mean, it's, customer service is important, and I'm not trying to, you know, be condescending or anything, but the types of companies that choose to invest here are not necessarily you know, the hugest names or, um, and I think part of that is because we lack things like a fairness ordinance or it almost oh, just really stuck in, in a lot of ways. And I think that that has a huge influence on the type of businesses that we have here. Anybody else, any thoughts on that or just the statue in general? Uh, I, I was uh, talking to some people on Facebook who texts really were a whole lot of argument takes place over this whole statue thing. And the people I live with, my roommates, completely disagree with me, so it does make things difficult <laughs> when I say the, the statues have got to go. And I think that's important is that we stand our ground about it. I don't think it has any place here. Be and the reason why is, like I mentioned on Facebook, is if you take something and you really look and see what it stands for, and if, it's, if it stands to oppress or harm, it does not belong. Right. Especially being mindful of the fact, we've seen, you know, the stats lately in the graphics that show us that most of the Confederate monuments in the country came around the 1900s um, or a little bit later. And that was, of course, when Jim Crow laws were enacted. Um, that was when the Klan was very active. That was when things like The Birth of a Nation um, came out, the film. So... If we're thinking about the time period, then the argument that they're to honor the Confederate dead, it just, it doesn't add up. <laughs> and for instance, Stone Mountain, um, which is in Stone Mountain, Georgia, that's not Atlanta, it's like 40 minutes outside of Atlanta, but has a carving of Robert E. Lee and Stonewall Jackson and uh, Jefferson Davis. And that carving was not finished until 78. So there's nothing, you know. And they were so proud of it. Yes, and that it's to me it comes off as um, like Reverend Ronald said earlier, just reminders of who's really in charge here. Reminders to stay in your place um, because we're going to honor and glorify and memorialize the people that were on the wrong side of the fight. So, mm -hmm. Reverend Claudia. Yeah. Hold on, just a second. She had her hand up. Yes. <laughs> Okay, 
is a totally different subject right. than a statue, which we don't even have anything about the union. Right. You know, and it's like, what does history say? And so some people are so caught up in this whole battle of we need to have free speech. Doesn't matter who you are or what you are, you should be able to say whatever you want to. And I was like, no, there comes a point when you have to decide when you cross the line or someone else has. For the same reason we can't scream fire in a crowded place, right? There are yes, limits. Yeah. There are limits on that free speech. Responsible free speech. Could I, could yes. I ask? I, I want to ask one more question. My assumption, which may be wrong, is that people who want the statue to be moved from the courthouse are talking about putting it in the museum, which is all well and good, but the museum lost 20% of their budget. Where is the money going to come from to do something that makes sense, that will tell the whole story instead of just yeah. You know, putting it in a back room someplace. <laughs> it doesn't necessarily have to go into a museum. It could go also into a cemetery where other where Confederate soldiers and Civil War, War soldiers are buried. Because the statue says, in honor of our Confederate heroes. And whenever you have a funeral, you have a funeral in a funeral home or a church, right? When you go and bury your dead and you give honor to them, you bury them in the cemetery and you put a marker on mm -hmm. where the plot is. This is, in essence, what the Daughters of the Confederacy did when they put up this monument. Mm -hmm. So in other words, the monument is out of place. If you want it to be, if you want if to you want honor your Confederate hero, you put it in a cemetery. If you want to preserve history, you put it in a museum. So I would advocate that the same money that they use to preserve it from the elements on the courthouse lawn be used to preserve it on the inside of the museum because you can just transfer that cost for the maintenance of it. Or it could be used on, in the, the, on the grounds of the Battle of Sacramento. Right. I wondered about that. And there's an entrance of Mississippi, there's a place called Bryce's Crossroads near my office, and that's all along. It was a park, and they were commemorating a bad, terrible battle. It's like Gettysburg, it's the same thing. So that's where monuments, things like that, they always go. Because yeah. they belong, or the place where it has a place, and the Battle of Sacramento right. took place, leave it there. Uh, the statue's made of bronze, isn't it? Mm -hmm. And it's it's actually done by a very famous sculptor. Mm -hmm. And the birds can be placed as birds. Think about the birds. <laughs> That's why I said inside. Yes, sister. I hear people saying, why don't you have the statue? We don't know to rewrite history. We're not going to. No. This is part of our history. And I, that's kind of only part of the history yeah. right yeah. but like you said it insults a huge population of people and to kind of stand on the side that says it's our heritage one i am very southern my parents are from georgia and mississippi me and sandy have a lot in common <laughs> but um there is no part of me or anybody in my family or anybody that's black that I know from the South who feels like that's our heritage. The part of our heritage that is connected to, and I am a descendant of enslaved people on both sides of my family. Um, of course, not all black people are descended from uh, slaves here and not all white people were racist or slave owners. And we know that. But the part of my heritage that those uh, symbols are attached to are the ones that terrorize my people. And that, you know, that, it just has not ended, and that's why it's really bad. It's never surprising because racism is very normal. It's actually the fabric of our country, if we're being technical. Um, so it's never surprising to me, but it's always, always baffling that, like John Lewis talked about, getting people to make, uh, getting um, people to see what's happening. I don't know how to do that if you know. After all this time, we're still having the same problems. I don't know how to do it yet. And there's one more parallel that I would like to point out as well. The population of African Americans in our country is pretty much the same as it was then. So 
you're talking about a smaller population in comparison to the general population. And I go back to scripture when it says that we are to be, uh, to take care of the least of these. So when you are an elected official or when you have the responsibility of leadership within your community, the ones that are the most vulnerable are the ones that you should be most aware of because that means their voices are less likely to be heard. So those that are morally astute and want to stand for what's right would be advocates for those that don't have a voice. Just uh, say, uh, one more thing about the statute. Okay. The, the, another reason that statute needs to move is because I work with African Americans that say their children aren't staying here because they're not welcome here. The youth are leaving, and they're leaving because of prejudice is powerful. So we have to wrap up. Sorry, <laughs> you know we can't keep it going. But thank y'all for coming. And keep getting